Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah again tonight, and we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. We picked up last week in our study of Nehemiah, and we have seen the great work of God within the city there, and, and all throughout Nehemiah what we've noticed is the character of leadership. God has called all of his followers to be leaders for him, to have influence for him um, in the lives of other people. So no matter where he's placed us, uh, in our churches, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, um, in our communities, in the things that we're involved in, if you know the Lord is your Savior, God has called you to have an impact for him. And if we're going to do that in an effective way, we have to do it God's way. God's way isn't just the best way, it is the only way. And so as we have closed kind of the the section in the book on the physical rebuilding of Jerusalem, the walls in 52 days were rebuilt, we have then opened this next portion of the book of Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the people. And so we're going to look tonight at Nehemiah chapter 8, with this idea in mind, this idea of properly responding to God's word. And that's all throughout this chapter. There's 18 verses here. Now, I personally, uh, I love sports. I don't know. I know there's some of you. I know not everybody likes sports as much as I do. Uh, we spent you know, we spend a lot of our evenings and afternoons at least watching some of the Braves games because we're big Atlanta Braves fans. And um, my kids, uh, they, they just enjoy it. My wife was just telling me I already come over here this afternoon, but Caleb was yelling at the TV because somebody hit a home run. And so they're, they're being trained well, you know. And, uh, but in sports, one of the things that, that people love is the comeback story. You know, the, the player that everybody thought was done, that that he, his career is over, and he comes back another year, and he has an incredible year, an incredible run. Uh, the, the team that's down four in the bottom of the ninth inning who pick, that picks itself up and wins the game, the, the organization that's destined for failure and, and turns it around, or, or the coach who came up short redeeming himself. But, you know, a good comeback story often takes time and effort, of course, not giving up, And really, when you boil it all down at the core, it takes a commitment to the basics of things. If your team is down several points or several runs in the waning moments of a game, you don't get it all back in one fell swoop. We wish we could, but you you don't. You must be patient. You have to stick to the basics. You have to take things one step at a time. In Jerusalem... As we've looked at the story of Nehemiah, there's a comeback story that's brewing in in Jerusalem. God's people had sinned, and because of their sin, God did what he promised to do. He delivered them to their enemies. And so for for the the last couple hundred years, here have God's people been, been gone from the city. And so now, here they are, they're returning, and what they've done is they've rebuilt the temple and they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and they've begun to live life here once again. And what once lay in ruins is now evidence of God's grace and strength in their lives. Because it's only by the grace of God that these people could come back to the city and rebuild the temple, and then in 52 days rebuild the walls, all all while staring down the enemy. However, the work isn't done. 
I mean, that's just the start. The story isn't complete. Because what, what is it that got the Israelites in trouble in the first place? Were the Israelites in trouble because Jerusalem didn't have a wall and so people came in and destroyed them? Were the Israelites in trouble because they didn't have a king or because they didn't have people who knew how to fight? What is it that got Israel in trouble in the first place? It's a failure to obey God. They had a wall. They had a a king. They had people who were capable of standing there and fighting. But it it was their failure to faithfully uphold God's word that brought them to judgment in the first place. And so now... God calls on his people to, as it were, come back to the basics of their faith and to practice and practice and properly respond to his word. And what you see in Nehemiah chapter 8 is this, that God's people thrive when they actively engage with and obey God's word. This is what, this is the core basis of, of, of any work of God in his people. And it starts with Israel, and that's our direct application, obviously, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, but it expands outward from there. That if you belong to God, and you're going to have any semblance of, uh, of a successful Christian life, and successful doesn't mean you have lots of money and all of these things. Successful means that you're living a life pleasing to God, and you're growing and changing in him. You have to be committed to actively engaging with and obeying God's word. And so we're going to see three things tonight from the lives of the Israelites and see how that applies to our lives and our hearts today. In Nehemiah chapter 8, in the first eight verses, we see this idea that we first have to understand God's word. Look there with me. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the, for that, for the purpose. And beside him, at his right hand, stood Mathaniah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and, 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 and my, Maseah. And at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malkiljah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened a book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. 
So here is this idea of understanding God's word, because if we're going to do God's word, if we're going to do what it says, if we're going to, to embrace and engage and obey the word of God, we have to understand what is it God is telling us. And we see this in several different things. One, here we see the setting of the people of God, of the Israelites, before the word of God. So with the walls rebuilt and the people being resettled into their homes, which we looked at throughout chapter 7 last week, the rebuilding of God's people has now begun in earnest. And what we have to understand is that God's people cannot survive apart from God's word. God's people cannot survive apart from God's word. That is true of the Israelites who received the law of God. That is true of of God's people today. You and I, if we're going to do anything good for God, we cannot survive apart from the word of God. God's people cannot experience his blessing when they neglect to follow him. And so Ezra is called upon here at the beginning of chapter 8 to present the word of God to the people. And it's interesting to note Ezra and Nehemiah really act as, as two parts of a whole story the two parts of the return of the people to Jerusalem. And it's interesting to note that for about 13 years, Ezra has been in Jerusalem ministering to the people. In these years, he has sought to return the people's hearts to the Lord. But it really seems that that his work has gone really uh, ineffective. There hasn't really been much headway that's been made in those 13 years. But things are about to change in Jerusalem. Because Nehemiah, who has been the primary character of this book, which is unsurprising because the book is called Nehemiah, is about to become a background character. And really, for the rest of the book, you're only going to see his name four times in the rest of the book. He is still around. He's the governor of Jerusalem. Um, but he, he, he has now purposed to push God's word to the forefront now that the practical work of the, of the wall has been completed. Now, the practical work that God called Nehemiah to do was not independent of a, an importance and a focus on God. We, we've seen that. Nehemiah was really, really good about focusing on God and trusting him with everything he had while giving God everything he had in in completing the practical work of the wall. But the time has come now to cement the people in the word of God. And so now we look at this guy, Ezra, whom God has called to do this work. And understand that for 13 years, here is Ezra. He's been faithfully serving the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Lord is about to use him in a mighty way. And I believe that, that Ezra, as we look at this, this is, this is a great lesson in faithfulness to us today. Sometimes, maybe more times than we care to admit, God calls us to a faithful work that nobody else sees. Most of God's people live their lives in relative obscurity, faithfully serving the Lord wherever they're placed. We make much of the big names of Christianity, right? We make much of the big thing, the, big, the people who have had the greatest, so to speak, greatest impact on their generation. You know the names, I know the names of these people who, who have, we have read their biographies and heard their sermons and seen their missionary work. 
Few and far between, though, are these big names that make tremendous splashes in the greater Christian community at large. You know what? Far more common are the faithful servants making consistent ripples in the lives of those that God has placed them in. And we read Ezra, and we think, I mean, that's a name we all know. He's got a book in the Bible after him, right? But understand that here's Ezra Ben just plugging away for 13 years in Jerusalem with little to no effect. But he's faithfully done what God has called him to do. May I just say that, that if, if, you serve the God, if, if you serve God faithfully, there may be people who don't notice. And, and we, we can be very tempted to become bitter over that or angry at God because, you know, we want more recognition. If we, and if that's the way we come out in life, then we don't understand what it means to serve God. God doesn't call us to serve him for ourselves. He calls us to be faithful for his work and let him do the work. And now... God has, has sought Ezra to continue to, 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 to serve him. And, and now um, Ezra, who hasn't been caught up in the results, has just stayed faithful. We now see him be called on in a great and mighty way. We read in Ezra 7, verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. And here's something you, you and I need to understand, that God does not entrust large opportunities to unfaithful servants. If we want God to allow us to have greater and greater impact, then we need to be faithful with the little things he gives us every day. And here is such a large thing in the life of Ezra. An assembly of people is called in front of the water gate on the east side of the city. And it wasn't just for the men, or it even wasn't just for the adults. No, what we read, it says, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. It was all those who could understand what was being said who came to the assembly. And they were to come for one purpose, to hear the word of God. And when it talks about here, the book of the law, that's exactly what it is. God's laws to his people. This is his revealed word to Moses. And this was done, we're gonna, we see here, for six hours that day, roughly about six hours. And you thought there were long messages here at Beaverton Baptist Church. But for six hours, the people come and hear the word of God. Now, the whole Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, could not be read, and as we will see, explained during this time. So it's likely then what Ezra did is he read key sections, or even that he read from the book of Deuteronomy, which is a a summation for the people as they had prepared to enter the promised land. And so here in this setting, too, we see that this was done on the first day of the seventh month. That's not just a you know, oh, by the way, that's an important thing because this isn't just a typical month. This is a special time of year for God's people because on the, in the seventh month, you have the Feast of Trumpets, which was generally held on that day. And then following that, you'd have the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the seventh month. And then from the 15th to the 21st days 
of the month of the seventh month, you would have the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is a crucial time of year for God's people. And so it was the perfect time to come back to God and his word. And so we see here that the setting of, of everything that's going on, but we also see the setting of the people's hearts. What an encouraging thing to read here near the end of verse 3. Um, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. How often do we struggle with that? We say we want to hear God's word, whether we're opening it up for ourselves or we're listening to someone else preach it or share it with us, however it may be. We say, yeah, I want to hear God's word, but it doesn't take a couple minutes and we're checked out and doing something else. Or when it comes down to what God really says to us, we just kind of skip over it and just keep going because we really like the way we're living our life already. God's incredible work of reformation or revival is always preceded by a desire to hear and understand his word. There are many, many a good Christian who have prayed for revival to come into their church and into their lives but then don't have a desire to listen to the word of God. You can't have revival. You can't have reformation in a church. You can't have revival in a church or reformation in a country or in a city or anywhere else and people, until people are ready to hear the word of God. It has to be primary. The people come with hearts that are set on hearing God's word. And all has been prepared then for God to do a great work. We see the, that this is, that's the setting. Now let's look at the preparation here in verse, starting here in verse 4. We see first there's a place that's been prepared for Ezra in front of the gate. They have constructed a, a platform on which he will stand and read and explain God's word. And he has these, other, these 13 other men, we looked at them here a second ago, who are with him. And then these men, along with some other guys and the Levites, they're going to be crucial to help the people in their understanding of what God has said. These 13 leaders, along with Ezra, the, 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 up there on the platform, they represent a willing leadership prepared to help the people draw close to God. That's the goal of leadership, to draw people closer to the Lord. So then Ezra opens the law, and it would have been on a, on a scroll there that he would have rolled out, and, and we see that, that when, when he does that, the people stand up to hear the word of God. They are preparing themselves to hear it, and they stand not out of formality, but out of reverence for the word of God. And then Ezra seeks God's preparation in their hearts Ezra blessed the Lord in verse 6, the great God. What does that mean? Well, Ezra sought God's blessing through prayer, and he sought his help on their mission here this day. We cannot understand God's word, God, I'm sorry, God's word apart from God's work and God's help in our lives. We need him to help us to understand these things. So Ezra calls upon the Lord for his help. And, and, and we've, we've seen this. We, we even in our own church setting in, here in, in, in the United States today, I mean, oftentimes before the message is preached in a church, there'll be a prayer, right? 
Or maybe when you sit down to read your Bible, you, you'll pray. And why do we do that? Is it something that we just, well, if we don't pray, then, you know, then it's not really a church service? Then, no, I mean, that prayer should be more than just a mere formality. It's a true supplication to God that he would meet with us and teach us from his word. It is a beseeching that he would use his word in our hearts to help us truly know him and what he has said. And the people affirmed this in verse 6. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. That word, Amen, is an expression of agreement. That this is true, or surely, or, or let it be so. That is what the word means. And by the way, that's why it's appropriate to use it in the house of God. Amen? Yeah, you could, we could say that a little more around here. That's okay, all right? You know, don't, yeah, thank you, okay? You know, don't make up things and say, well, that's what you think, you know. But if you agree, it's okay to say amen. It's okay to, to say that's, that's right, that's, that's the word of God. And that's what's primary. And the people say, cry out that, that they agree with what Ezra has called on God to do. And then we see that they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And as they have stood and reverenced the word of God and bowed before him and called out for his help, now we can see that the work can begin. And we can begin to see the work of understanding the word of God to unfold. Understanding something in life, to really understand it, takes something else, takes some effort, takes time, takes whatever it may be, right? Understanding the Word of God is no different. It takes us submitting ourselves before God. And that's what the people do, and that's where God meets them. And so in verses 7 and 8, what you see there is the process of understanding that takes place over these next six hours. And and really what you see is exactly what we should model in our public preaching and teaching on the Word of God today. It's interesting because really what what, what Ezra takes here is what we may call an expository approach to the Word of God. The law is read... And then those people who were appointed to help other people there understand that that's what they did so. So we, we think, well, what is it that they're helping them to understand? Well, some of their understanding may have actually been a language barrier because the Jews have been in captivity in Babylon, and, and there um, they would have learned and probably embraced then during that time the language of Aramaic. And with the law of God being written in Hebrew, there's probably some of those who needed help understanding, literally understanding what God said. But there's also the matter of helping to clarify what was meant, helping the people then to apply the law directly to their lives. Because that should be the goal of all of our study of God's word. Our goal should be that that we would apply the truth of God to our real life situations and do the things that God has said to do or change the things that God has said to change. The application is the goal, but it must come from the word of God. You see, when we open up God's word or we go study God's word or we hear someone speak on God's word, we are not 
interested and we're not seeking to see what man says about God's word, but what God's word says about man. That's what we want to know. And so, throughout these six hours, portions of the law are read and then they're explained. And we don't really know exactly how this worked, but perhaps, you know, with these, all these men, you have these smaller groups that they break up into. These men help explain these things. And then that process is repeated. And so this ensures that the people actually understand what is being said. But all the while, the focus is the law. The focus is the word of God. Real preaching takes place when the word of God is sought to do the work and not man. I've been in a lot of different places and heard the word of God preached a lot of different ways and a lot of different, by a lot of different people. And there are some who focus on the word of God and there are some who focus on the work of man. If you ever hear a message, if you ever hear preaching on the word of God and you think something like this, You know, that sounds just like what the Bible says. Then you heard good preaching. Because in the end of the day, that's what it's about. God has not left us to go out and find hidden meanings or unearthed truths in his word. If I can just tell you, one of the things that I loathe to hear when I, when I listen to preaching, is someone who gets up and says, well, you know, nobody's ever said this before, or nobody's ever thought of it that way before, and I usually say, yeah, there's a reason for that. Because that's not what the text says. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God is primary. He is the one who opens these things to our hearts. So who do we trust? We trust those who will give us the direct word of God and no substitutes. And they help to explain it and encourage us to study and know it personally. And we see then what a wonderful beginning to the revival of God's people in Jerusalem. And it has to begin with this desire to understand and this engagement with the word of God. But it doesn't stop here. There is a proper attitude that people must take towards it. And that is what Nehemiah and the other leaders work with on the people next. So, so first, we see the understanding of God's word. We see the setting. We see the preparation of their hearts. We see that, how the process unfolds. But then we see the rejoicing in God's word in verses 9 through 12. In verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Here's an exhortation from Nehemiah and the others to a proper rejoicing in the word of God. Because when the people heard God's law, they were struck to their hearts. We see that they had begun to weep over their sin. And indeed, 
we should certainly exhibit brokenness over our sin. Actually, next time we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to talk about the people's response to their sin. Because true revival in the hearts of people involves an individual and corporate awareness of and sensitivity to sin. Again, there's, there's no true revival or reformation unless people are willing to confess and forsake their sin. And oftentimes, we speak of wanting God to do a great work. I mean, I think if we went around and we polled people in the church tonight and said, do you want God to do a great work? Well, yeah, we want God to do a great work. But unfortunately, most of the time, we want God to do a great work in someone else's life. Leave mine alone. But that's where it has to start. It has to start in our own lives. This is who we're responsible for. We should ask God for his conviction of sin in our lives. The commentator Derek Thomas in in his commentary on Nehemiah said it this way, we long for peace when there should be a war within our souls. We want pleasure and not pain. We feel that it is our right to be happy and churches that make us feel otherwise are ridiculed and derided as legalistic. But we have to understand that God cannot change us without making us uncomfortable. That's what the Word of God does. But that discomfort isn't the end. And maybe that's where we get off base sometimes. We, we, we feel like we've just been left there. You know, like, well, I'm awful. Great. But that isn't the end of God's work in our lives. That comfort, that discomfort God brings about in our lives is there to induce repentance in our lives. And we cannot change and grow in the Lord unless we understand this idea of what repentance is and how important it is for us. Because it doesn't do us any good to confess our sins and do nothing about them. Confession is an important thing. It's saying the same thing about your sin that God says. That it's an offense to him, that it's wrong, that we shouldn't do it, that we need his help. But repentance, literally the word talks about a turning around and going the opposite direction. And of course, we we understand, I hope we understand what that means at salvation, that we turn from trusting in ourselves and we place our trust in Jesus Christ. But even in our own lives as Christians, when God, when God works in our hearts and shows us sin that we have not surrendered to him, it does us no good to say, yeah, you're right, and keep going on and doing it. We need to repent of that sin and say, with God's help, I'm going to stop doing that and embrace godly attitudes and actions. When we do this, we will find that the forgiveness of God is close at hand. God does not hold back his forgiveness or dangle it just out of reach, but he offers it freely to those who turn to him. And that is why there is cause for great rejoicing in the word of God. If we come to God 
with hearts that are ready to repent and turn to him, he will make us glad. There is true joy found in being right with the Lord. It is this joy that Nehemiah and the other spiritual leaders call for here in Jerusalem. They do not want the people to stay in the state of weeping and mourning, but to instead rejoice in what God is doing in their hearts. He has redeemed his people from captivity, and he's raised up his holy city once again. He has begun to do a great work of revival in their hearts. So therefore, because he is doing this, they are exhorted to respond positively to these things. There is great joy found in God's work in our hearts that he loves us enough to draw us to himself. And this is what the people do. In verse 12, we saw the rejoicing of the people. That they went out to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. They respond positively to the word of God that they have understood. They receive it with joy. They allow it to inform their actions. And so then they live in the joy of God's great work and begin showing that to one another. And we can see the genuineness of their intentions to be right with God in their joy and their subsequent actions the next day. Because not only did they understand God's work, Not only did they rejoice in God's word, but then lastly we see in this chapter, in the rest of the chapter, we see them obeying God's word in verses 13 through 18. Now, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths, during the feast of the seventh month, that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. When the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or in the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day to day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So we see that there's a further study that goes on in the lives of the Israelites. Because when God's word becomes the focus of our deepest desire, it will leave us hungering for more of his word. As I was thinking about these things and meditating on on this passage, this is the verse that I thought of from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What does God promise to do? God promises to meet our needs in his word. But like physical food, 
That's not a one-time event. Think of it this way. Let's say that after church on Sunday, you and your family go out to, I don't know if we have these anymore after COVID, but they go out to the buffet, right? I know there's still some around, but, you know, isn't there one, the Golden Corral? You familiar with that, right? Okay, that is like a teenage boy's dreamland, okay? You just go and you eat and you eat. I love, when I was a youth pastor, one of my favorite things to do, we had a, a pizza place near our church uh, that was like that. You could just eat all the pizza you want. And I just love to take those guys and just watch the plates just pile up, you know. So they eat so much pizza, they just can't even stand it anymore. And let's say you did that on a Sunday afternoon. And you look at your, your family and you said, well, I, I hope you enjoyed that because we will do this again next week. Until then, we're not going to eat anymore. How's that going to go? It's not going to go really well. But you understand that that's what a lot of Christians do. You come to church. We hear God's word. Hey, that was really great. And then you go home and put your Bible down and don't pick it up the rest of the week. You cannot survive on one meal a week. You cannot survive on one, and if you come back on Sunday night, or two of these meals, so to speak, out of God's word a week. You have to return to the word of God yourself. We see this here in the men of Jerusalem and in their response. They return on the second day to hear more of the word of God. It is interesting. It is not the entire group that returns. But who is it? It is the leaders of the homes. And we're not here to speculate why people didn't come back. You know, they didn't have the whole group. I imagine they had other things they had to do as well to keep the city going. But we have here the, 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 the people that must lead the charge of spiritual well-being in God's people. If the head of the home has no desire to obey God exclusively and wholeheartedly, it will be much harder for the word of God to penetrate the rest of the family. Dads, moms, we can very easily handicap our kids' spiritual growth by our failure to fully embrace God's Word. Now, that isn't to say that God doesn't break through and do His work. Clearly, He does. Throughout history, we see that. But all the blessing to say that God was able to use us willingly in that process. But because of our own hard-heartedness and our failure to lead and to genuinely apply and be, and be pliable to God and his word, we send a different message. And if we view the things of God as optional, our children will view them as unnecessary. And here we have 
God's people, the head of the, of, of, of the houses there in Jerusalem, we have them returning to hear the word of God. These men, they gather to hear Ezra's words. And in so doing, they learn of something that they've fallen short on. What have they fallen short on? Well, it's this Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. And this is an observance that was commanded by God to be a remembrance of his work of the deliverance of his people from Egypt. One of the best ways to encourage our hearts to trust God in the future is to find ways to appropriately remind ourselves of what he has done in the past. Now, I'm not calling on us to live in the glory days like you know, you ever met somebody who they, all they talk about is, well, back when I was in high school or back when I was in college or back when, it's like, hey, man, get over it, okay? That's, that's gone. We're here now. So we don't want to go around. We don't want to tote around some spiritual victory that God, you know, God did this in my life 10 years ago and he hadn't worked ever since because I'm, you know, I don't want to really do anything for him. No, 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 appropriately, though, we need to remind ourselves, hey, this is what God has done, and he's still that same God. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to do. It was designed to remind God's people of what God had done to encourage them to trust him and to dig into his word and rest in him. It was a reminder of God's protection during a time of great difficulty and hardship in the lives of the Israelites. The people of God traveled out of Egypt, and they lived in these tabernacles. And tabernacles is another word for tents. They lived in these tents for 40 years. Because while they were on the way, they refused to go in the promised land, so then they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Can I just tell you something? I have spent all of one to two nights in a tent and hated every second of it. Okay, my idea of camping is like, hey, we'll go stay at the Holiday Inn, you know. I can't imagine spending 40 years in a tent wandering around in the wilderness. That's what the Israelites did, and that's where God, he, he did such a great work in their lives. God watched over and protected his people. And remember... While they were there wandering, they were in the midst of judgment. Why were they out even wandering in the wilderness for all that time? Because they refused to obey God. But even in the midst of that judgment on sin, they wandered, as they wandered, God watched over his people. This feast also then occurred at the time of harvest. And as such, it was a time to give praise to God every year for his goodness. Therefore, it was expected It was even commanded in God's law that this would be a time of joy and celebration. We kind of chuckle at that, right? Like, does the the law say you will have fun, right? No, what it's saying is you're going to rejoice because of what God has done. and You're going to rejoice because of his provision. It's appropriate. Let's, Let's do that. Let's gather every year. So what is this feast? It's not a time for liturgical duties, but of joyous praise to God. And when the men heard these things, they realized they had not been doing this as God had commanded. Now, let's ask ourselves very practically why for the last X amount of years, let's go back, let's go back before, you know, 
let's, from where, where we are right now in the life of Israel, let's go back 15 plus years. Why had the people not celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles? You tell me. They were in captivity. There was no celebrating going on when you're in captivity. There was no feasting going on when you were under the punishment of God. Under Ezra's leadership, we read in Ezra that the people had kept, upon their initial return, they had kept this feast. But it seems it had fallen away again after this. And now they face a choice. What will they do? We are all faced, by the way, with that same choice. When we are convicted by God's word of our sin that we engage in, either by commission or omission, the choice is always the same. Will we obey God and what he says, or will we continue doing what we know God has convicted us of? And we see the obedient response of the people. They do not let these things remain status quo in Jerusalem. They engage in change, and they seek to obey the Lord. This is a momentous and remarkable time in Jerusalem. This is an amazing statement. that It is said that this is the greatest celebration since the time of who? Since the time of Joshua, when they came and conquered the promised land for the first time. Now, perhaps the return from captivity and the rebuilding of the wall had reframed the people's minds, the importance and the, and the joy of such a celebration. You know, oftentimes when we go through these things of great difficulty, it helps put in perspective what it really is that we're celebrating. The people keep the feast as it's prescribed. And then what's interesting is each day, verse 18, also day by day from the first until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They hear the word of God some more. What a joyous time in Jerusalem. Because when God's people follow God's word, it is a joyous time indeed. There is nothing greater than following God completely. Satan will sow seeds of doubt on that statement in our lives all the time. That, you know, you can still be okay if you don't follow God's word here. You can still be okay if you don't really follow God all the time. You can still be okay. But the best, the surest, and only way to find joy is to realize that there's nothing greater than completely following God and his word. God's people thrive when they actively engage with and obey God's word. God's word is vital to the life of God's people. As was true in Nehemiah's day, it is true today. If you're going to be successful in your walk with God, that you must take the proper attitude towards God's word. It must be that which we seek to understand above all else. It must be our greatest joy, and we must be submissive to all it says. We cannot, though, expect to thrive spiritually if we do not engage in God's Word. As I said earlier, coming to church and hearing the Word of God preached is great, but it's not enough. If you're truly going to grow and change, you need more. 
We have God's completed word in our hands today. I mean, what a privilege. Think about that. Think about how, how the Israelites, they're in Ezra's day. They, didn't, they didn't, weren't able to go home. You know, when we talk about picking up a tablet and reading God's word, I mean, they literally, they had tablets that they wrote things on, like stone tablets. They didn't have what we have. If they wanted to hear the word of God, they had to go to the priest. They had to go to Ezra. They had to go to these places and find the word of God. We have in our hands the complete record of God's word. And if we're honest, how many of us own multiple copies of the word of God? And if we don't own them physically, you have one of these little guys, you have so much access. It's a privilege. And if you want to see God do amazing things in your personal life, in the life of your kids, in the life of your church, in the life of your community, or anywhere God has put you, then you need to give God's word its primary place. Let us not be content with the status quo, but ask God to change us. And then give him the time to do so. Hey, God, I want you to change me. Then we just kind of go about and do the rest of our lives, you know? Like, like there's something that's just going to fall out of the sky, and it's just going to, oh, we're changed. If we want God to change us, we have to, give him the, we have to give him the freedom and the ability to do that by submitting ourselves to him and listening to what he says. And it starts and ends with the word of God. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this amazing and powerful word that you have given for us to hold in our hands today. And we ask that you would have the freedom to do your work in our hearts. Help us to not just give you the lip service of saying we want you to do something, but help us to give you the actual actions of service by opening that word, by seeking your help to understand it, and then by engaging with it and obeying it. Where we know that, that there's a great work that can be done in our own homes, in, our, in Beaverton Baptist Church, in Beaverton, Michigan, in the, in the greater area here, if we will but follow you completely. And we ask that you would give us tender hearts, open and ready to do your will, and show us these things from your word. We ask that you would give us a great and wonderful week this week. May we uh, go forth from this place encouraged to serve you and see you make a difference through us and, and uh, in us. In your name we pray. Amen.